there is such a thing as post-Olympic depression. It's a real thing. The transition to life after sport and leaving that identity behind is brutal. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I'm your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Back in the home office, returned from the satellite facility. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> We've got power and internet and water. So it's I'm good. moving back from the 1800s, from the Athens games, and now I'm I'm back and ready for Tokyo. <laughs> And I meant the first Athens Games. <laughs> Summer storms, so much fun. I know. You never know what's going to happen. Now, I don't think summer is typhoon season for Tokyo, but wouldn't that be funny? That would be funny. That would be hilarious. <laughs> no. Let's postpone a year and then get a typhoon. Don't say that. Don't say that. Uh, thank you to all of you who showed up for our closing ceremonies. Fun. We did uh, watch John McLeod's uh, documentary that he's been working on and then had a little Q&A with him, which was really fun. And if you're a patron, that might show up as one of your patron goodies soon. So uh, thank you so much again to John and for everyone for celebrating the end of what would have been Tokyo with us. And hopefully we'll be actually celebrating and closing ceremonies next year. I'm going to keep a positive attitude. That's right. I, I've realized, speaking about that, mm -hmm. I've been very negative lately. So I'm, I'm going to make a real effort to not mention a certain IOC former president, to not be Debbie Downer. I'm going to turn over a new Canadian maple leaf and be more positive. Okay. That sounds good. Now that I just mentioned the typhoons. <laughs> but I was happy about it, so it's okay. <laughs> Well, as this show would have been right after Tokyo 2020 ended, many athletes would be making big decisions about their futures. So we wanted to look at how elite athletes transition out of competitive life. And to help us understand this topic, we talked with Leslie Klein. Leslie is an Olympian who competed in the sport of kayak. She was chosen for the 1980 team, but had to sit out those games due to the U.S.-led boycott of Moscow 1980. Then she competed at L.A. 1984. Post-competitive life, she worked for some different NGBs and was most recently the director of athlete career and education at the USOPC for the last five years. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic forced layoffs at the USOPC, and she was one of the many whose role was eliminated. But we spoke with her last month about what she did in her role at uh, the Athlete Career and Education Department and how athletes should transition out of sport. Take a listen. When you're an athlete and you're thinking about transition, or when, when should you start thinking about transitioning out of sport? That is a great question. I, athletes should start thinking about transition to life after sport at rookie camp. When they first commit to being an elite athlete, when they get named to the national team, this is a process that it's important that they develop over their entire athletic career. 
And many athletes and many programs don't encourage that. So it really, the burden of planning for an athlete's transition into retirement from elite sport is on the athlete themselves. And I believe that the more secure their plan is, the better their results will be athletically and the quicker and shorter and less difficult the transition will be to life after sport. So that includes everything from what are you doing educationally? How are you managing your brand? How are you managing your finances? How are you collecting a network of people that you have opportunity to rub elbows with as an elite athlete that you may not have after you retire? What do you think is the greatest resistance to athletes doing that, thinking about it early? For the athletes, a lot of resistance to planning for a life outside of sport may come from their coaches, although that is changing, especially Eastern Bloc coaches where sport was 100% of what you were supposed to focus on. And But for an athlete, a lot of athletes have told us over the years in the program that I ran at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the Athlete Current Education Program, that if they had something going on in parallel with their sport training, they were able to get on the ice or on the track or into the gym and focus better on their training. So I think having your brain active and having something else going on in your life actually can improve your results on the field as well as prepare you for life after your sport career. Does the thought pattern differ for athletes in smaller sports that don't get a lot of recognition versus athletes in say gymnastics or swimming or something or, or athletics where they could have a professional career or a lot of money come their way based on performance? It's interesting that the athletes that are in higher profile sports, often we found are the ones that struggle more in the transition after, after to life after sport. The athletes in the smaller, less recognized sports all along know there's not going to be a career as a professional rower or, you know, a professional kayaker. And so they're more often better prepared for life after sport. But the higher profile athletes that got more attention, and especially if they were more famous, the crash and burn after retirement, although they may have the financial resources to support themselves, and that's not as much of a concern, the psychological aspect of the identity transformation to not being an elite gymnast or an elite swimmer after they retire can be more dramatic and more difficult. Kind of the higher they were on the pedestal, the the harder the fall. What kind of things do athletes think about as they go from, or what, like, are there phases uh, almost like grief where they, during a transition, especially in the higher profile sports? That's, that's a great question as well. We've put athletes through an assessment tool called the change style indicator. And it, it, it's how it analyzes or assesses how, based on your personality profile, you handle change. And there are sort of athletes sort of fall into the three buckets, the conservers who are the ones who are like kind of gripped and can't move forward in terms of planning for something after retirement. They want it to go back to with their team, with their coach, with their training, with their schedule, and they can't move on. And on the other end of the spectrum is the originator who just slams the door behind them and says, I'm good to go. I put that behind me and I move on. And there are problems with both of those. The conservers 
get stuck and can't move forward and are just looking back in the past and have to kind of map out steps for themselves to move forward one at a time. And the originators actually don't process and go through kind of like you said, the phases of grief um, that somebody has to go through to leave something behind, to open something new. And many times later in their life, they're going to end up having to face that. And then there are athletes kind of in the middle, the pragmatists that have a more objective approach. You know, they, it was great while they were doing it, but I'm looking forward to moving on. So one of the things, one of the programs that we started with the ACE program at the USOPC was called Pivot. And we put the athletes through that change style indicator and give them a lot of tools of how to move forward. And I think right now um, I was just looking on their calendar and it looks like they have one scheduled for December. So athletes that are on national teams and their various sport governing bodies or were Olympians or Paralympians would be eligible to go to the pivot workshop if they're retiring. Is there a significant difference between athletes who are in team sports versus individual sports? Team sport athletes, I think continue to crave the team that they were on and it's important for them to recognize that if that was important to them moving forward as they look at what kind of career and what kind of what their next venture is going to be that if that's something that's important to them they need to find a job or you know place of employment or a tribe for them to join socially if that was a really big part of their life so that that losing that team, their sports team, doesn't leave as big a hole in their kind of their social life. Some individual athletes, um, that's as important to them. There, there are so many sports that are individual sports, but they were on a team as well. So it's kind of a gray area between team sports and individual athletes as well. I know Tessa, when we interviewed Tessa Gobo, who was a rower, she went to roller derby and she talked about that that gave her that team aspect. So that's directly, she said, that's what she missed having that, that tribe. And she found it someplace yeah, else. Sw- like swimmers, swimmers, it's an individual sport. It's your time, but you're on a swim team. So, you know, whereas figure skaters, you know, they're out with their coach and maybe a partner or whatever, but um, there's also other athletes training at the same rink and, you know, they're often with a club. So, I mean, there are very few totally individual athletes, you know, even individual athletes like triathletes and long distance runners have training partners that they, you know, have to train with or want to train with. So, yeah, the hard part, I think, in transition is that the athlete loses their identity and the younger they started competing in the sport, which often gymnastics, swimmers, skiers started when they were six years old. It's their entire identity as a human being on this planet. And they are terrified of losing their identity and moving on to something else. And they feel like if, if I'm not a swimmer, I'm nothing. And they've stated that to us. If I'm not a gymnast, I'm nothing. And so I think that's back to your original question about when should an athlete start planning on their transition. The more they've planned for that starting at their young age of an elite athlete, the better prepared they're going to be if they understand who they are as a person, what their values are outside of sport, they'll be, it'll be a healthier transition. But all that says, I think it's incredibly difficult. There is such a thing as post-Olympic depression. It's a real thing. The transition to life after sport and leaving that identity behind is brutal. And really finding a tribe of other athletes going through that, which is what the pivot program provides for these athletes 
can really help or reaching out to other athletes in your sport or other sports who have recently gone through retirement or even not that recently and making, I think allowing the athlete to recognize that there are real phases to this transition and that what they're feeling and thinking is not, they're not crazy and they're not really that unique, that it's normal. So that's one of the big issues of transition is helping an athlete understand that these these feelings that they're having and experiencing are normal. Now, something you mentioned about where gymnasts start so young, they also retire very young. You know, you don't see too many, especially female gymnasts past 20, whereas some other sports like rowing, they're usually post-college or even something like equestrian, they'll do for years and years and years. So with the retirement program, you really need to address people in very different life stages. That's correct. And in in a way, the younger you retire, the easier because you're less out of phase with other people in society. I mean, if you retire from gymnastics and some of the retired gymnasts retire and then go to college and can even compete in college if they haven't turned pro. And whereas, you know, like you said, a rower or some of the swimmers that are in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s, even into their 40s, they have been this identity of an athlete has followed them from childhood through their teens into their twenties and even to their thirties. And they are possibly 20 years out of step with their peers. And it's just a hard reentry into society. Is there a big difference when you meet, disappoint, exceed expectations of how you were going to do at the Olympics specifically? Yes and no. I think that the outside world would see that an athlete who achieved a gold medal or whatever their goals were at the games would have an easier time. I think that's an external perception, not necessarily. I mean, there are athletes who come home from the games and they were on page three of the results and no one knows their name and they didn't make any money in their sport. And yet they had a very uh, robust experience of going to the games and meeting other people and are ready to move on. And there are athletes who achieved a gold and nothing else in their life is ever in their mind at this moment going to top that. And so it almost could be inverse to the results they achieve as the difficulty in the transition for for many athletes. And obviously everyone's an individual and handles everything differently. But I mean, there are athletes that didn't do well and that end up really bitter about it and carry that with them. And there are athletes that have done really well that have moved on and can even make a career just being a gold medalist for the rest of their life if that's what they want to do. But those are the 0.1% of athletes after they're done with their Olympic and Paralympic um, careers. What are some of the tools that you developed with the USOPC to help athletes in this transition period? We had a whole number of tools and this pivot program was a two-day workshop and then followed up by a six-month follow-up where the small cohorts of athletes, six athletes, met in a facilitated situation and went through different exercises. A lot of it is just figuring out one step at a time. What is one thing you're going to change? Looking at your own values, what's important to you, building a network of people outside of your sport network. Often when athletes retire, they really don't have any close friends that are not on the team. And if they're the only, if their team stays intact and they retire and they're the only ones, they lose that completely. 
So there are a whole number of um, other tools, like also picking up mentors that are other athletes who have retired and developing relationships with them. Journaling is one of them and working on your values and your identity outside of sport. Do you find it very different or is there a different approach when the retirement wasn't planned? So if say an athlete gets injured and can't return to sport the way he or she had intended to. Yes, that is a brutal reality. And it's not just injury, but the whole group of athletes who either don't qualify. I mean, in, in swimming, you're in the top two. In track and field, you're in the top three. You could be 0.01 seconds from second place or third place, and you're not going, and you're not making it, and, you're, and you retire. Or in a team sport where the coach says you're just not a good fit for the team, and you're done, and you aren't on the roster. So there's injury, not lack of qualifying or getting cut. And I think those are all tough things to swallow because they're all out of the athlete's own control in some ways. And so that adds a whole nother layer of difficulty. But even the athletes that choose to retire, I think it all ends up being the same thing in the end. But the athletes who do end up forced to retire often start with like a chip on their shoulder, some bitterness toward their body, toward the situation, toward their coaches, toward their governing body. And we found a lot of that in in the Pivot program, and we're helping athletes work through that. And it was really rewarding for our whole team because I think for the athletes to see that there were people in the organization that cared about them as people and that were there to help them really help some of these athletes overcome some of the negative feelings they had for how their career ended. How does what the USOPC provides or provided at this stage in the game compare to what like a, a national governing body or a federation provides? Do do athletes get support there too, or or was this kind of a unique program? A few of the governing bodies have programs, but most of them don't have the resources to provide a robust program for their athletes. Um, U.S. Ski and Snowboard had an athlete career and education program, has an athlete career and education program. I believe they've scaled back a little bit. And U.S. Swimming has some staff um, dedicated to helping athletes. Track and field has some programs, but it's mostly the bigger sports. Most of the sports governing bodies don't have anything for the athletes in this area. And many of them are so kind of bootstrapped in terms of finances and staff and short staff that they're putting 100% of their resources into the athletes that are currently training and and on their way up the pipeline, and they just don't have the resources to deal with the transitioning athletes or retiring athletes. And the athletes who came to the Pivot program, many of them were very bitter toward their sport governing bodies for how they felt they were treated. I mean, there were quotes like, I was kicked to the curb or I was taken out with the trash. I was disposed of when I was no longer an asset. And so... I think that there's a lot of work that can be done in that regard, but I don't think for the athletes it matters that much if they get it from their sport or they get it from the USOPC or they figure it out for themselves. If they can find a positive life after sport, it really helps. I remember Spain announced a similar program. Were you seeing this for other uh, national committees as well? Actually, yes. And I had the opportunity to go down to Australia and be part of a forum for athlete well-being in February, right before COVID hit. And the Australian Institute of Sport is well ahead of the U.S. in terms of of programs that they have. They basically have 
a person like an athlete current education career coach embedded in every sport federation that's paid for by the federal government. And they have put a high priority on athlete well-being. And, I, and it was really interesting because they were saying the more we do on the front end in terms of taking care of the well-being, the less we're going to have to do on the back end in terms of mental health issues and depression and anxiety and all these kind of things that are a byproduct of, of not dealing with some of this on the front end. So Australia is ahead of us. Canada has a really unique program they call Game Plan that is partly funded by the government as well. So, yes, the British have a program. Some smaller countries, like the smaller governing bodies, just have nothing going on. But the IOC has a program called Athlete 365 Career Plus, and they're trying to put programs in place, for, especially for countries that don't have their own. Do you think that the pandemic has forced current athletes to start thinking about this transition if they haven't? Yes. And I was at the Olympic and Paralympic Committee through the end of May, and we were seeing an influx of athletes coming to the program because all their training was canceled, the events were canceled, and they were taking the opportunity to examine other things in their life, partly because they needed something to do, and then partly it just there was time to think about it. Education, other programs, learning a second language, developing computer coding skills, just thinking about it, meeting with a career coach, taking assessments. So I think that in a way, this group of athletes that maybe spent some time thinking about this over the last few months may end up better prepared for their transition because it was kind of a forced pause and reset for them. And then they really had to examine whether they want to continue for one more year and, and try for Tokyo or whether it was time for them to call it. And, you know, they had things were queued up that were to be after the games that, it was worth them continuing to pursue. I mean, I've heard stories of athletes that were getting ready to have in vitro fertilization. They were accepted to grad school or med school. I mean, just for whatever personal reasons, they may just decide this is it and it's time. And there are other athletes on the flip side that were really are young and up and coming or on their way up in their sport. And they're like, wow, another year to train. I'll be better in a year. So it's, it's both ways for people. But yeah, I think having the, the lockdown in COVID is, has caused athletes to think about things and prepare for their life outside of sport in, in maybe a better way. I know we spoke to Kristen Keim, who's a sports psychologist, and she said the same thing with some of her clients, that this just gave them a minute to think, you know, a little pause button yeah. that they were talking about. One of the athletes we also talked with, uh, Tom Scott, was when right when the cancellation of the games was announced, he was just kind of lost. And I don't know what to do because I'm used to traveling every weekend and now I'm at home. And it, it was interesting to hear that starting to feel out, what do I do or what else is there beyond my sport? Exactly, exactly. And one of the groups we brought in, we have a summit after each of the Olympic Games for all the athletes coming back from the Games. Um, in conjunction with Team USA Week in Washington, D.C. And we brought in Dave Evans from Stanford, who wrote Designing Your Life and taught classes at Stanford in the design school about, and they could taught this Designing Your Life. And one of the premises of the, the program in the book and their, their classes is to line out kind of three separate choices for yourself, 
one, the first one being the most obvious, kind of what you're already doing, but then pick a second and a third avenue and path and kind of walk down those paths, each of them, just kind of imagine what you would do, what would the steps, what contacts you need to make, what, you know, what are your interests? And I think those are the kind of exercises that would be really good for the athletes to go through, where even in their athletic career, design your life, the path, first path is, I'm going to continue in sport. I'm going to make the Olympic or Paralympic team next year for Tokyo and have a great athletic career. And another one could be, it's time for retirement. What would I do? And the third one could be something else. But um, yeah, it, it, so I think it's it's a matter of taking the time and doing some of the self-examination that athletes often don't have to do and don't want to do. I don't think just athletes don't want to do that. I think we're all guilty of that. Did you find that people would come to the office figuring out when is the right time to retire? Yes. And that is a huge, I think, benefit of this athlete current education program that the Olympic Committee has is that I would say most athletes hang on to their sport and their sport career a little bit too long. And we jokingly would call it the plus one year or the plus two years or plus five years. And often it's because they don't know what else to do. They, it's their entire social life, and they're afraid of the change. And so it's easier, and if they're good enough, they can continue to train and continue to get some funding, continue with their sponsorship, and continue on in the sport, even though they, quote, unquote, shouldn't. And so I think by having this dual career mindset or planning for your retirement, planning for life outside of sport, will allow athletes the freedom to kind of right time retire when they can look at a little more objectively their athletic career and not stay in it because they're afraid to retire or have nothing else or don't know anything else. And another kind of ancillary aspect to that is there are athletes that are going into coaching in their sport when they retire and they feel like it's kind of the loser thing to do because they're going into coaching because it's safe and they know the people in the sport, it's their social network. And we were trying to encourage the athletes to, who want to go into coaching to look at it as a profession and get professional training to be a coach and maybe step away from their sport and do that and look into some other sports or some education and then come back and look at, is this what I really want to do? And if it is, to not look at it as a, you know, as giving up, look, looking towards something else, but as an opportunity for them because it is what their aptitude is for and they want to give back to their sport and looking at it in a positive way. So how do families or loved ones support athletes in this process appropriately? Often they don't. And that that's a great question when we run these pivot workshops, I mean, these athletes usually don't know each other and they sh show up at the workshop. And by the end of a day and a half, two days, they're leaving. And they've said to us, uh, I feel closer to everyone in this workshop I just met than anyone else in my life, including their families and loved ones. And so I think the, the advice to families and loved ones for their athlete to help their athlete in transition is not to just continue to perpetuate the, the image of the elite athlete, which oftentimes is what happens and kind of hang on to that and that lifestyle, but to allow them to explore other things in life and their values and what else they might want to pursue and encourage them to take the time to do that 
and to follow their dreams and their passions and explore other things and try things just, you know, even if they're very different things, like try three or four different things, do, you know, some volunteering or do an internship or, you know, look into entrepreneurship or take classes in, in coding or whatever. But I think for the families to help the athletes, not try to keep them back in the persona of the sport. And oftentimes those family members were on the coattails of that elite athlete. And so they're a little bit losing some of their social life and the societal benefits that that came along with being part of that entourage of the athlete. So they have to sort of self-examine and say, you know, I, this isn't healthy maybe for this person that I love and I need to help them. It's the stage mom syndrome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's financial as well. I mean, the athlete's making money and I mean, it's, it's everything. It's social, financial, it's travel. And so they have to remove themselves from that. And, and, and I think often the athletes are afraid to have an honest conversation with their loved ones as well. So the loved ones, the entourage, their family, their friends, or significant other can maybe help initiate that and help the athlete get through this process instead of hinder it. Yeah, I'm very interested in the difference when it's a spouse or partner, because usually that person would have come into the athlete's life when they were already at least on the way to being an elite athlete. Do you find that's they're more supportive, less supportive, as opposed to the parents? I think it's it's very individual. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the parents are worse, sometimes the spouses are worse, it, it, and sometimes either one could be better. It's it's just so it's so individual. How was this compared to what you were doing and what the what? governing bodies are trying to do today versus when you went through the system? There was a lot less money in sport when I was competing in the 80s. And because of that, there was a little bit of a less expectation that there was any future in professionally in your sport for most athletes. So I think that we were better prepared because we it was more a reality check that there was life after sport that didn't involve sports. So I think most of us got our educations and also had to work some. So we had something to put on a resume, whereas many of the athletes now have never worked ever. And they, have, they don't think they have anything to put on their resumes and they have no professional experience. And we had so much less money. We were basically nomadic, homeless kayakers as I traveled around the country and around the world with you know, kayaks on the roof and a mattress in the back of your car and a little camp stove. And you just went from training camp to training camp, kind of following spring north from Florida up into New England and then, you know, over to Europe. And we were hitchhiking around Europe. And it was just, I think, a lot of the skills that we developed because there weren't programs from the NGBs to take care of us the way national team athletes are taken care of now ended up being life skills that translate into the rest of your life. But um, it was definitely harder and it definitely athletes have better opportunities for their actual training now than we did. But I think it, it hinders them in life after sport a little bit when they were so taken care of as athletes. Okay. Wait, did you hitchhike with the kayak? Uh, at times? Yes. In, in Europe and in the U S yes. Often pickup trucks were the best way to get a ride. <laughs> well, I would think, you know, I don't think the little, you know, VW bug is going to pull over and say, oh, just throw that on the top. Exactly. No, I we I was in um, 
Austria one time and we with one of my teammates and we ended up hitchhiking. We, you know, we're just running river shuttles and we like offered to drive the shuttle car for one of the, the British team. And so we're in a car that's driving on the right side of the road, but it's a right-hand drive car with a trailer full of boats and driving down this mountain road. But, you know, that way we got to uh, the campground. So it all worked out. When did the money start showing up in sports? It's different in different sports. I'd say right now there are some sports that are absolutely no better off than they were when we were competing. And there are some sports that are light years ahead. And so I think, you know, back in the, in the eighties, there was still the international federations had law had rules on amateurism. And so it depended sport by sport, whether you could be a professional or not. And when the professional athletes started coming in to, you know, the NBA was allowed to play in the games, the dream team, that was really the big turning point when athletes were allowed to earn money whether it was being paid by the Federation, by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or professionally, professional athletes on the teams, it started to change. But there are, I mean, this, I think, is one of the biggest misconceptions about the Olympic movement right now, and especially in the Paralympic movement, is that these athletes have money. I think most of them are living below the poverty level, and most of them have have to work a little bit and are being supported by um, by family members that are helping them out. The, the the kind of notion of the athletes that are on TV and have endorsements are what people think of as the Olympians. And that's not the case for most of the national team athletes that are striving to make the games. So when you think about your own career, you made the 1980 team, obviously, then the boycott happened. What was your own thought process as in deciding to continue for another four years? Well, I was, it was a devastating summer, the summer of 1980. I mean, when the House of Delegates voted in April that we weren't going to the games, we were trying to figure out if we could move to Finland or where could we go to compete. They didn't have a women's team. I mean, it was crazy. We were, it was like our whole life was taken away. But I was only 25. And so at the time, it was an easy decision. I was at the top of my fitness I was paddling well. Um, it was a lifestyle I enjoyed, and it was an easy decision for me to say I'm going to go four more years and try out for Los Angeles '84. And then I was the trials though in '84 was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life. Like by that time, you know, I had eight years under my belt, actually more, probably ten years of training for the Olympic Games that I hadn't been to yet, and. It was just, you know, basically you talk about all your eggs in one basket and it, it was just not a positive experience. It's just, it was just stressful. It was just, I've got to make this team because I put my whole life on hold for, for this career in sport. And I was fortunate to have made the team and so many other people went through that same process as I did and then didn't make the team in whatever sport they were. And those people are really devastated. It was I can't even imagine how they feel felt at the time, and, and some of them still continue to. And then after 84 was done, you would have been 29. So did you sort mm -hmm. of feel like, okay, I've done this now and I'm ready to move on? You know, 
that was my original thought going into the 84 games. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go four more years. And then I made it, which was great. And the experience at the games was amazing. Although we ended up getting fourth, which is, you know, one, one off the podium, but um, to do that, it was in the women's four and we had the best time we'd ever paddled. So, you know, what can you say? But um, I was thinking I was going to retire and just the, the post-Olympic depression being a real thing. I just, I mean, no one talked about it then. It didn't have a label on it. People didn't talk about mental health. I just knew in my gut that it was too much to quit right then. So I did one more year, kind of my farewell tour, my retirement tour, made the world championship team, competed in Belgium that summer, and and just spent one more year sort of decompressing from that intense Olympic experience and I, I'm really glad I did that. I think it allowed me to sort of come down from that Olympic high more gradually. And then I ended up pregnant a year later and had a daughter. So that was kind of moving on to the next thing of having a family. Yeah, I don't know if the pregnant belly would fit in the canoe. <laughs> yeah, my last race, I think I was three months pregnant. I didn't oh, tell geez. anyone because I wanted to go to the race, but um, it was the North American championships. But yeah, it was, I, I was finishing my graduate degree in exercise physiology and then also, you know, got pregnant. And so I had a whole new life ahead of me. And then I would have the opportunity to work in sport basically my whole career professionally. I worked for the MGB for canoe kayak for 10 years. And, and then ran the mountain bike association for USA cycling after that. So, and then that was before my five years with the athlete career and education program at the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee. So I've been able to give back to the Olympic movement and stay in touch with something that I've loved both as a competitor and then as an administrator and being able to help athletes. Thank you so much, Leslie. That was really interesting. She was, we could have talked to her for probably three hours <laughs> between her experiences as an athlete and her experiences at the USOPC. And we didn't even get into the stuff that she had done at the NGBs. No, no. But yeah, I think it's, it's got, it's so tough to deal with something that's consumed your entire life and every waking moment and then having to deal with, oh, what do I do now? Because it's time to move on. I have not yet watched the HBO Weight of Gold documentary. Neither have I. But I have unfortunately seen a lot of comments that people have made on articles about reviews of it, because the reviews have been excellent. But the comments generally fall in the category of these whiny brats complaining about struggling after they have all this success. And that really frustrates me and makes me sad because, number one, it clearly shows that we as a society still are not taking mental health seriously enough. Right. And two, that we still love to tear down our heroes. Mm-hmm. And three, that when these people dedicate their lives to something and then it's gone, that's a real loss. And the sacrifices that they've made to get to that point are not being recognized. And just because, and there was a lot of talk, of course, again, the idea that everybody's Michael Phelps and you make millions of dollars afterwards. Right. Where that is so not the case. 
as we know from so many people that we've spoken to, not only are they not making money after they're, you know, living at poverty level during and during the training. Yeah, you know, there was an article in USA Today this week that I found on Twitter. Oh, our our friend Ken Hanscom had posted it. And it was a, a USA Today article by Scott Gleason, who talked about Olympians and their finances and focused on a mountain biker named Leah Davidson and how the postponement has been really hard on her. And she relies on USA Cycling to stay uh, supported financially, but USA Cycling pays essentials and maybe other NGBs can pay essentials. But it says here, Olympic athletes on average will still pay anywhere from $30,000 to $100,000 out of pocket for travel, training, and nutrition. And the details of how much $30,000 to $100,000 covers is not included. Like, is that a year? Are you paying $100,000 out of pocket a year to do your sport? I wouldn't be surprised. You know, certain sports that have a lot of equipment or transporting that equipment. I mean, or a horse or a horse. (laughs) Right. But just think about how expensive it must be for, you know, even something as simple as the skiers to transport all that equipment baggage fees alone would be $30,000, you know, because they have so many races. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, that 30 to a hundred doesn't surprise me. I mean, remember when we talked to Pat Pearsall about the skating costumes. Oh, yes. And the cost of those. And you're buying, you know, a different one every year. Just the costumes, never mind the skates and everything else and the travel, spending $10,000 just on sparkles. To me, it's kind of crazy. One thing about the pandemic is that I hope we get kind of a reset on some of that because people just keep building and building and you want to make everything better and better every year. And and that takes more and more money a lot of times. So if we run into a situation where we just don't have the money, a lot of the nice to haves go away and maybe something like, Oh, we'll go back to a simpler costume or maybe we'll see gymnastics leotards without 20,000 sparkles all over them. But I I don't know. I mean, although some of the nice to haves probably have been things like, nutrition education which you would think is kind of a basic but i bet that's not been around too long in a lot of these ngbs or in a lot of smaller national olympic committees that just don't have the funding right so it's but tough the idea but the idea that these are spoiled prince and princesses just not wanting to give up their glory days is so unfair and not true. And these are people competing for their respective countries and should not be thrown out with the trash. I agree. Let's check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shuklistan. USA Weightlifting CEO Phil Andrews wrote an op-ed for Business Express on good leadership during COVID-19. So we will have a link to that in the show notes. I wonder if it involves having your cat walk across your desk. (laughs) He keeps posting pictures of the cat and (laughs) keeping him company. So I hope he included pets are very good coworkers. 
that they can be so and then keegan randall was on an episode of the madeline and becca podcast talking about comebacks and the different comebacks throughout her career and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well and we have a new shook flastani we do we do so next olympic hopeful winner for rugby lindsey mayo got a puppy oh his name is apollo very cute and she's already training him apparently he's brilliant the smartest puppy ever we don't have puppy quarantine in shuklistan the the dogs can just come in (laughs) let's move on to tokyo 2020 news the rings that have been in tokyo bay have been removed for maintenance because they didn't expect to have to keep them up for another year. I know. I saw that that they were they were unstable and they were Can you imagine if they fell over? Can you imagine if they just kind of whipped off into five different rings? And, and it went in five different directions <laughs> like rolling away. The symbolism of that would just be horrific. <laughs> so yes, they're uh, doing some maintenance on them and then putting them back together. Um, my guess would be maybe they'll show up after typhoon season. Probably a good idea. Oh, how did Aoki die? The red ring got him. <laughs> That's not, not funny, but it's funny. <laughs> it wouldn't be funny if it actually happened, but... Looking at other Olympic news, Team Canada released its kit for Tokyo 2020. Now, this is so hard because just at the beginning of the show, I was saying I'm not going to complain anymore. I'm not going to be negative. <laughs> that lasted all of how many minutes? And Canada released this thing. That's like an 80s reject. Yeah, you know, it's very, very casual. So Hudson's Bay is the partner for Canada's kit. So they've released all of these outfits. They've got opening ceremony outfit is... A red jacket with a zip front, and it looks kind of shiny. It's lightweight nylon, so it's got that shiny members-only look to it. <laughs> if you if you remember members-only, it's got that kind of look to it, and it's going to have a white T-shirt underneath, and then they pair it with white high-rise jeans. I, I will say this about uh, the high-rise jeans, which, as you mentioned, not flattering on a, lo- a lot of people. But uh, they do have a little maple leaf on the thigh on the side, which I kind of like. I will say that about the jeans. I wonder jeans. if the zip, you know what would be cute? If the zipper catch was a maple leaf. Oh, that would be cute. cute. I, you can't tell in the pictures because it doesn't get that detail. But I really hope that that's true. Okay, well, we'll cling to that. The, <laughs> but I think the, the opening ceremony outfit is kind of casual comparatively. I mean, not compared to, like, 1992 when they had, you know, that big print with shorts or culottes, whatever. I don't know. They were big shorts. But this looks pretty casual and sporty comparatively to to other opening ceremonies outfits. Then for the podium, they're wearing a lightweight knit jacket that says Canada across the back. And it is also red, and it's got a dry fit jersey t-shirt underneath and athletic track pants with this is this is what the press release says athletic track pants with an unexpected canada graphic on the back leg complete the look that sounds a little frightening actually <laughs> i don't want my i don't want my pants to surprise me 
<laughs> oh, that, that look is unexpected, Canada. <laughs> I don't want interesting placed maple leaves. <laughs> and then the closing ceremony uniform is going to pay tribute to Tokyo. The uh, this is uh, here's a here's a quote from the press release. The closing ceremony uniform pays tribute to Tokyo, the fashion forward host city in a unique and artistic way. So basically, they've got a jean jacket that's got graffiti on it with the Canadian flag, Canada in uh, English and Canada written in katakana, which is one of the alphabets of uh, Tokyo. Then they've got this, again, with the high-rise jeans, the high-rise white jeans, and then they've got a black and gold T-shirt where it's a black with a gold circle that kind of looks uh, the gold Damn. circle like of, of Marianne from the 2024 logo. Oh, with I a, saw Batman. And then a black maple leaf, which you have said evokes. Batman. So, I wonder if a light will shine out of their chest like the bat symbol. We need Canadian athletes now. But you know what? We do need Canadian athletes. Every Canadian athlete we have spoken to has been some of our favorite interviews. Jacqueline Simino, Megan Duhamel. So, you know, I would like a little maple leaf symbol. We need Canada now. So I can just call my Canadian athletes when I need them. <laughs> A bad so Launch your maple leaf beacon yes. across the sky. Yes. Well, you might be happy to know that this look is a strong nod to the classic Canadian tuxedo. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that that say, is what they, they said. They actually said that. Oh, that's not something you want to advertise. <laughs> <laughs> well and the cute little gymnasts will get a lovely pair of white denim jeans and since they're so high rise it'll be a matching tube top because high rise jeans on a short girl <laughs> trust me i know this go up really high canadians can shop the the looks at the bay.com you can get the trucker jacket the closing ceremony trucker jacket for $198 and the closing ceremony. the trucker jacket? Yes. The unisex closing ceremony trucker jacket is $198 and the closing ceremony t-shirt is $25, which is actually, I think, kind of reasonable. Yeah, I would agree. Especially since it's gold and sparkly. Oh, yeah. This, this jacket, the back is just, it's... It's different. How about that? It's different. And the thing about the closing ceremonies is that you don't get to see the outfits as much because everybody's coming in together. Right. You don't get the mass of, you know, 500 people all wearing the same outfit walking in together, which probably in this case is a good thing. So speaking of team brands, the Hungarian Olympic Committee has now branded itself as well. Around the Rings had a press release that they've launched the brand Magyarok. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. I I think you are. Which uh, what does that mean? It refers to Hungarians because that's like Magyar is Hungarian in Hungarian. Hungarian. Yes. Uh, so now they're having this Magyarok lifestyle brand so that they can brand themselves like Team GB or Team Deutschland or you know Team USA. I'm excited to see what they come up with. Well, they did show the the logo. 
So the Hungarian Olympic Committee had the logo on index.hu, which is in Hungarian. And it's a logo, when I saw it, to me, it looked like a cattle head. But I think it's two hands reaching up in kind of a V, and then the or the arm, the oh, for, yeah. forearms are reaching up in a V, and then the hands are kind of upwards to the sky. And one is red, and the other is green, and there's white in the middle. So that is like uh, emblematic of the Hungarian flag. I think it's supposed to be a stag head, because that's what it looks like as well. So I think it's a, it has like a multiple sort of like oh um, yeah yeah Marie it does look for Paris yes like you see the flame and you see Marie's head so I think you ah. see the stag head and the hands ah interesting so uh, we will be on the lookout for more with that brand as well see and this is very funny to me because my college uh, mascot was a stag oh okay and I thought I had seen every variation possible of a figure stag head and this is new oh that's cool i like that um and then one of our book club authors uh andrew marinus who wrote games of deception about the first u.s men's basketball team at the olympics is starting research on a book about the first u.s women's basketball team which was at uh montreal 1976 so he said on uh, twitter if you know anyone that has a connection to the team or their training centers in warrensburg missouri or plattsburgh new york or if you know somebody who was living in montreal during the games and can talk about what the vibe was like back then contact andrew on twitter at True Blue 24, and that's T R U B L U 24, or through his website at andrewmarinus.com. And we will have links to those in the show notes. I'm very excited because I enjoyed Games of Deception. So, yes, we did. And isn't it frustrating that it took 40 years to get women? I know I'm supposed to be positive. Isn't it good <laughs> that by 76 they had done the parody thing and women were playing basketball at the Olympics? Yeah, that that's great. It was a little better. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it's time for us to work on our positivity. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week is Movie Club, so Film Buff Fran will be back as we go out to Tokyo by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.
at it now. 